With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. My name is Ryan Stacy, and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is presented by StatsCoach. StatsCoach is a hockey analytics company which works with the minor and junior hockey community. For more information, visit www.statscoach.ca or contact StatsCoach at Outlook.com. Today we're joined by Wes Wolf, assistant coach with the Erie Otters. I initially met Wes through a phone call in my first year of university but I've had the opportunity to interact with him through various outlets over the past few years. For those who are unfamiliar with Wes, he is a very open and forward-thinking hockey mind who in the process of learning is quick to share his viewpoints and ideas with others. I think Wes sets a standard for the modern hockey coach, utilizing all information and analysis to put together a process that is both thorough and effective, which in turn creates a strong product for his team on and off the ice. His speaking ability is second to none, and his overall personable approach makes for a very interesting and telling interview. With that, I'm excited to present Wes Wolf, assistant coach with the Erie Otters. Today we're joined by Wes Wolf, assistant coach with the Erie Otters of the OHL. Wes, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm happy to jump on with you here. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and I think people are really excited to hear about your experiences, so we'll just get right into it. Uh, tell me about where you're from and speak to your upbringing and your involvement in sport throughout your youth. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Uh, we moved there when I was uh, about five or six years old anyway. We, we, we did live in Sudbury, um, so that's kind of where uh, at least my personal background in hockey sort of began. I, I played a little bit of hockey uh, in Sudbury. We were Wolves season ticket holders, and my dad was actually um, pretty good friends with Mark Burgess, who was the owner at the time. So we used to spend a lot of time um, up in the owner's suite and uh, kind of got an inside look there. But, um, you know, we, we moved to Niagara Falls. I've got three siblings, two, two older sisters and a younger brother. They all played hockey too. Uh, my dad was really involved, coached all of us at one point. He played himself, um, you know, was on all kinds of boards and committees and um, definitely was, was a role model for me through all that experience. But, uh, you know, it was, it was mostly hockey. Uh, I did play, you know, a little bit of lacrosse and soccer, but uh, kind of spent my time in the single A and triple A loop in Niagara Falls when they still had triple A hockey there. And, um, you know, I, I kind of got into coaching, I guess, coaching my younger brother. I was about uh, like 13 or 14 when I started helping out with his house league team. And um, that's kind of kind of what I, you know, remember getting bit by the bug um, to want to coach hockey. And uh, like I said, because of my dad's involvement, I think coaching all of, all of us kids, um, it was just something that I sort of uh, attracted to 
naturally. So I really definitely grew up in a hockey household. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, I mean, people are always wondering when coaches, uh, you know, you get into that area, where, where does it the, uh, the inspiration come from and that initial experience. So it's it nice to hear that, uh, that experience and obviously talking about your dad as well. Uh, so going a little bit further, uh, coming out of school, you had two initial experiences in hockey, one being your position as marketing director and assistant coach in Chippewa and the other being a board member with the Niagara Falls Minor Hockey Association. Maybe talk about how you obtained those two positions and what those first experiences were like in hockey. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, I, you know, I started volunteer coaching when I was about 13. Um, you know, I got my certification and I sort of coached congruently with playing. So I, I think I was 16, actually, when I, I had my first head coaching job. I coached my brother's uh, he would have been, you know, peewee house league at the time. And, um, you know, that was right when I was playing for the junior C river Hawks myself. Um, and so I, I sort of coached as I played, uh, you know, got into travel hockey a couple years later with a, a minor peewee single a team. You know, I, I coached in the select program in Niagara falls. And then, um, you know, as I was playing junior continued to, to sort of get involved with the travel hockey teams. Uh, when I when I hit 21, I graduated from Niagara College uh, Sales and Marketing Program, and um, you know at the time, really was was interested in in making hockey a career. Um, I, I got a job with a sports manufacturing company called Harrow Sports, and uh, I was an account manager selling you know sticks, gloves, equipment, bags, um, and, and did that for for three years. So at the same time. Um, I started coaching AAA. I was uh, the 2000, they were minor Adam AAA in Niagara Falls. So I was the head coach. I had two of my buddies helping me out. And, uh, and I just figured, you know, the best way to, to do this, to make a career is, is really jump in um, feet first. And so I uh, took a position on the executive board with Niagara Falls Minor Hockey. As you mentioned, I was the um, Adam House League convener and uh, I was coaching the AAA team. And then the, the Riverhawks junior C team, uh, the team that I played for, you know, just to get some experience in the sports marketing field, I, I volunteered as the um, marketing director and, uh, and was also kind of a part-time assistant coach. So I was really busy. I was 21, um, basically spent, you know, my whole day on the road and, and at rinks talking to coaches and managers about uh, buying equipment and uh, then spent my evenings at the rink coaching the AAA team or, or traveling to away games um, or with the junior C team. Then on weekends, you know, largely spending that time um, fulfilling my executive um, convener duties with Niagara Falls minor hockey for the house league because they play on weekends. So it was, uh, it was a full schedule anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it sounds like you were quite busy during that time. And I think uh, it's a good idea, you know, for anybody getting into it, just, you know, dive right in and take as many experiences as you can and, and get that knowledge and, and experience under your belt. Um, you touched on doing some AAA work uh, during that time. Uh, soon after you moved uh, into a position with the Niagara Riverman minor midget team, uh, how was that experience of coaching players in their draft year and how big of a learning experience was it for you personally? Yeah, well, I, I think before I touch on that, you know, you, you, when you said, you know, people looking at the game experience, I think the big thing that I sort of learned in that time is the importance um, of range and having divergence, you know, like, yes, I wanted to coach, but getting to experience hockey from all different angles was such an important piece to my, my development as a whole. Um, 
you know, learning the business side, learning the, um, you know, the executive management side and the coaching side sort of blended a lot of experiences that, that really helped me as I went through this. And so, um, you know, coaching that minor midget team, I think actually was the first time where I really started to put some of those pieces together where uh, minor midgets a unique year. Um, there's obviously a lot of profile with the OHL draft. There's a lot of people around, um, you know, a lot of scouts. There's just, there's a lot of attention and profile. And so on top of being a coach, you know, you're, you're a part-time um, psychologist for your players, you're, you know, part-time sounding board, uh, a mentor role, but then also, you know, on the business side of things, we didn't uh, really have, we had a sort of team manager, but, um, you know, booking hotels and putting together player profile um, magazines for the scouts to look at and uh, maintaining a website and social media for the team, which was sort of just starting to get big at that time. Um, I, I think that was sort of putting some pieces together uh, from my business background, uh, along with the managerial background into coaching. And so uh, it was a great experience. That, that 97 group, I kind of look back now, it's funny that they're already a few years removed from junior hockey. Uh, I've sort of seen that cycle through as a junior hockey coach now, but I really grew up as a coach with them. I was, um, you know, I, I was only... 23 years old at that time um, and uh, still obviously had a lot to learn in, in coaching and, and in life. But I, I felt like I really sort of grew up with that, that 97 age group um, and, and my career sort of took the same path um, at the same time as those guys did coming through the hockey system. Yeah. It seems like a great opportunity. And you touch on, you know, that year for so many players, it's, it's so vital in their development. And, and a lot of times you just need to be there. Well, obviously as a coach, but, at the same time, you need to be there as a mentor and a sounding board, as you touched on. So um, definitely a great experience, and I'm sure others uh, feel the same way in that situation. Uh, the following year, you continued to coach AAA, this time at the midget level. Uh, was there a different approach with them being an older group, and did you look to coach differently knowing that these players would maybe be taking a route, different route, whether it be junior A or an alternate route to OHL, et cetera? Yeah, that was um, the, the year after the minor midget year. I had the same – age group more or less. They were 97s and 96s. It was actually the first year in Ontario they were piloting um, an open borders policy for midget hockey, which I believe is um, the norm now. But that was the very first year they had it. And so uh, what made it a little bit different is that recruiting became uh, a big piece to what we were doing. And we were really fortunate. Um, you know, that was the last year that Niagara Falls AAA was going to have hockey. Uh, the association really backed, um, you know, our, what we wanted to do. So it was, we really ran a, a, a miniature junior program. We had our own locker room at the Chippewa Arena. Um, guys had their own stalls with nameplates. The association actually waived the registration fee for our players to help us with recruiting. Um, you know, there was a small player fee. I want to say it was about a thousand bucks, but we got team helmets and gloves um, you know, pant covers and, and basically all the things that you would get and, and probably um, on top of what you would get playing with a junior program. And so I, I think, you know, I, I look back now, part of our whole recruiting pitch was that um, we were going to be able to help bridge that gap between, um, you know, midget or, or minor hockey and junior hockey and, and try and take a more you know, long-term um, athlete development approach and that, 
you know, uh, as an alternative to, to playing, you know, on a junior B team and, and sitting on the fourth line or being a healthy scratch that, you know, you could come play midget hockey, uh, play some meaningful minutes and, and get some experience uh, playing um, in a meaningful role. And we had some really good players on both that, that minor midget team and the major midget team. Um, you know, I, I was really, really happy. You know, I look back at uh, some of the opportunities our players had to, to move on to, you know, major junior or, or college hockey off of those teams. Um, and I think a lot of it was sort of that, that long-term development approach that we wanted to take where, um, you know, starting the minor midget year, Niagara Falls wasn't really a high-profile AAA center. We, we had a lot of guys who were cast-offs from other AAA teams or, or maybe wouldn't play on others. And, and then that, that next group, um, I thought we did a good job with recruiting in the major midget, but it was still guys who maybe weren't OHL draft picks who, who needed to take that longer route. And uh, it worked out long-term for a lot of guys. It was, it was a really neat experience. And, and for me as a coach, sort of helping bridge that gap as well between uh, minor hockey and the junior hockey. It was sort of that first foray coaching in that environment. Yeah, you speak to uh, the bridging the gap and then obviously treating it almost as a junior program and having that uh, maybe that next level feel uh, soon after you uh, where you're able to fine-tune your skills you got an opportunity uh, with Pelham Panthers uh, while brief talk about how the opportunity came about and your initial experience uh, at that level I, I kind of laugh when I I think about that whole experience it actually started when I was coaching the major midget team um, we had a, a number of players who were affiliated with junior B teams in the Golden Horseshoe and so they were the Port Colburn Pirates at the time. Uh, we had two players who were affiliated with them. And with a couple games left in the season, um, the head coach of that team, he, uh, he suffered a concussion at practice. Oh. And, uh, and so because we had sort of been in contact with that organization, they, they had an idea of who I was and my assistant coach, Nick Denhan at the time. Um, they, they had a good feel for who we were. And so they needed two guys to come and help run their practice and their bench at the end of that season. Um, so the major midget season was done. And uh, I kind of had this out of left field opportunity to go and be the head coach um, for a couple games with the junior B team. And uh, it was not a pretty situation. I think they had lost 17 games in a row um, when we went to go help. And uh, for me, it was just a tremendous opportunity to get my feet wet. I had already, you know, done some volunteering with the Junior B Canucks in Niagara Falls at their rookie camp. And, you know, with the Riverhawks Junior C team, I had a little bit of experience. But I figured, you know, what better time than now being 24, uh, 24 years old to, to get that chance. And so we, uh, we ran the bench for a couple games for them, did a couple practices, uh, I remember it went really well. You know, the guys uh, were really receptive to a couple of strangers who weren't really much older than they were, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And um, I guess, you know, at the end of the season, they sort of talked internally about what they wanted to do long-term and um, had offered, you know, the, the head coaching job to me at, at 24 years old um, to be the head coach of the Port Colburn Pirates. And so, you know, it was a great opportunity knowing that I, I wanted to coach, um, I had actually just been in the process of leaving my, my full-time employment at Harrow um, to sort of pursue coaching. So the timing was, was perfect. Um, you know, the, the experience probably looking back now is less than perfect. A lot of crazy things happened. The team that off season moved from 
a brand new rink in Port Colburn to the oldest arena in the Niagara region in Pelham. Uh, we didn't have a locker room, so there was a portable trailer that became our, our locker room. You know, we had uh, one returning player from the previous year's roster. You know, the uh, lightning hit the roof during um, tryouts. There was a leak in the roof. We had to cancel skates. I mean, it was, it was just a comedy of errors. Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Um, but, you know, it was uh, certainly, you know, an experience I look back on fondly now that time has passed. And, you know, it's not very common for um, someone without an extensive pro playing career background to, to have that opportunity that young to be a head coach of a, of a junior B team. And so um, it was short-lived. I was only there for, uh, you know, an entire offseason and 18 games to start the year. But it was, uh, it was definitely a unique experience, and it gave me a lot of different opportunities building a program from the ground up. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, when people look back at experiences like that, you know, sometimes it's the ones that you don't see coming. And, and while brief or, or, you know, extravagant in whatever way, you know, you touched on the, the portable trailer being the dressing room. You know, these little things are the things you look back on, and, and maybe it's a position where you really felt you, you learned a lot and, and grew as a coach. Um, so in November, I believe it was in that year, a great opportunity came with St. Catharines, where you would also assume the role as assistant GM. Uh, talk about the transition to that team and the added responsibility that came with the position. Yeah, th things didn't work out in Pelham as planned. We, we started the year 0-17. Um, we won our first game um, just after my birthday. We, we beat the Niagara Falls Canucks. It was my first um, you know, junior B head coaching win. And, uh, you know, there was just, it didn't work out with, with management there. Uh, we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on some things. And so um, that sort of fell apart. But as it was falling apart, you know, I had had discussions in the offseason before that, um, you know, with Frank Gurney and the St. Catharines Falcons, uh, an old roommate of mine had played for them. You know, uh, they were family friends, the Gurneys, with, with my family. Um, and so I sort of knew that they had had an opening for an assistant coach in the off season. And when I got the sense things were falling apart in, in Pelham, um, you know, it was actually the morning that I parted ways with the team that I sent Frank a text basically and just said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a free agent, uh, would love to chat. And his text back to me was basically, you know, uh, practices at four o'clock. And so on a number of you know, uh, hours, I went from being uh, the head coach of the last place team in the league to an assistant on the first place team in the league at the time. And, um, you know, it was, it was, again, really fortunate. Uh, sometimes timing and opportunity really play a major role in these types of things. But literally that day, I mean, I went to the portable in Pelham, I grabbed my skates and, and the stuff that was mine and uh, headed to the rink in St. Catharines. And, you know, from the time I got there, my experience was nothing but, but first class. I mean, the Falcons are a pretty storied organization in the Golden Horseshoe with a lot of history, a lot of great alumni, um, championship, you know, pedigree. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a complete 180 in terms of experience, uh, the way that they treat, you know, their players um, and the people within the organization, the amount of support that they have from the community, um, with volunteers, it was, uh, it was first class all the way. And so, um, you know, that first year, I assumed the role of assistant coach. Um, and, and I think, you know, for, for people listening who are looking to get into, um, get into hockey operations in, in some capacity, I think the good lesson for me was taking on 
you know, more than what the job description um, recommended through initiative. You know, it was things that, um, you know, I would pick up on that uh, maybe the website wasn't as up to date as it needed to be, or the Twitter wasn't up, uh, up to date as, you know, some other accounts. And so I basically just said, hey, is it okay if I start doing these things? And um, I took on responsibilities that I sort of saw opportunity in and uh, they were given to me because, you know, a lot of junior organizations operate on a shoestring budget. They rely on volunteers. And so I think anytime, you know, you can volunteer or, or um, ask to take on responsibility, um, you know, opportunities will be there. And so that's sort of how the assistant GM title fell upon me was, you know, taking care of things like the Hockey Canada registry and, um, you know, developing a recruiting guide and, and just trying to sort of take what was already a great organization to a, a completely new level um, in, in the modern age that maybe they didn't have. And, um, you know, I, I worked with Frank Gurney, was the head coach and GM. Rick, his, his brother, was the uh, other assistant coach. And, uh, you know, they really welcomed me, welcomed me with open arms, gave me a lot of responsibility, um, you know, sort of a lot of creative license to, to be involved. And uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity. I'm really grateful for it. And uh, it was, like I said, it was just first class all the way. Yeah, no, it, it's great. And, and I've been in St. Catharines and, you know, I, I've seen how that organization works. It's, uh, it's really great that you had that opportunity and uh, it was good that it was a quick turnaround, you know, going from a position where, like you said, maybe things weren't going the way you wanted and, and maybe things weren't going to work out, but you ultimately got, got the experience you were looking for and it, uh, it paid off. Um, keeping with the Falcons, you, uh, you assume the role of head coach uh, a little bit later. Uh, how was the experience of becoming a head coach in, you know, what you call a, a first class organization and how did it ready you for the opportunity that would eventually come your way with the Erie Otters? Yeah, it was, um, you know, that off season, uh, Frank's son, Christian was actually, um, he had been playing at Ridley college. He was a draft pick of the Erie Otters and, uh, he signed with the Otters. And so, you know, Frank sort of made a, a conscious choice that he wanted to, he wanted to be at a lot of Christian's games his first year in the OHL um, and, and didn't want to lose out on, on that experience. And so um, he kind of talked to me about, you know, taking control. And I, I think that was a big, a big leap of faith on his behalf. Um, we'd only been working together for, you know, the, the better part of one season. Um, there were certainly other people who probably could have taken on that, that role, but for him to entrust me, and that position um, was was really meaningful to me. And uh, like I said, I, I think it was a big leap of faith. You know, me being a young coach, um, he he definitely insulated uh, a good support system around me. You know, they brought in Chris Johnstone, who was a really veteran coach, um, had coached in the OHL and coached in the Junior B Loop for a long time. Um, and so they brought him on as a, a mentor, um, assistant slash associate coach. And, um, you know, there were still other people around. Rick Gurney was around a lot. He had lots of experience. And, um, you know, the other assistant there was Scott Schweitzer, who was uh, a younger guy, but wanted to get into coaching at the time. Um, so we had a lot of really good people. And uh, basically, you know, Frank sat me down and said, look, this is going to be your team. You're the coach. Um, I'm going to be the GM. I'll still be here in a support role. And, you know, if you have questions or, or need help, then I'm here. Um, but I, it was a great opportunity and, uh, you know, we had an older team, 
We played in uh, a pretty tough division considering Caledonia was there. That, that season was the year they really loaded up on um, former OHL players. I think they had 17, 20-year-olds on their roster, which is completely unheard of in junior hockey. Um, but it, it was an amazing, amazing experience. We, uh, you know, we, we came second in the conference to Caledonia. We made it to the, you know, horseshoe finals, played, played the Corvairs. I think we lost um, in, in four or five, five games, uh, but played the equivalent of seven or eight because of all the overtimes we were in. And, you know, I look back, we had two goal leads in, in two of the games that they came back to win in. Um, you know, I, I was really proud of that team. And it was uh, probably the first time, you know, really that as a head coach, I'd ever experienced a, a winning environment. I mean, to that point, um, you know, my, my AAA teams were all sort of, uh, lower category uh, AAA programs that were near the bottom of the standings. Uh, you know, obviously Pelham was uh, an unmitigated disaster in terms of the results that we saw. Um, and, and this is really the first time that I got my first taste of, of, of a winning environment um, as a head coach. And, uh, you know, I, I say that, you know, but I, I think part of what opened the doors for all those opportunities was because of, you know, sort of the holistic approach that we weren't just about winning or results. And, and we kind of looked at the big picture, focused on developing relationships, developing our people and, and had a long-term view. And, you know, a lot of the players that we coached over that time um, went on to find success in their careers. Whereas some of the more successful teams that won in the, the lower categories coaching didn't necessarily move on to the same levels of, success that a lot of our players had and so um I think you know I I, I look now and, and that was probably the first time coaching that St. Catherine's team where I thought okay this is um this is definitely something I see myself doing and, and being uh, successful at as, as a career hopefully you know long term that I could see myself doing this because um, it is you know you, you can be self-conscious about the results I think in in the sports industry at the end of the day you are judged by your wins and losses a lot of the time and so when you're not necessarily getting them, it's, it's easy to be self-conscious about that. Um, so I, you know, I, I was really thankful to be entrusted uh, in that role, but also to be given the opportunity to, um, to win. Uh, that was something that uh, I really enjoyed. Yeah. And you, you speak to that big picture approach that you guys took and the development of, of your players and the success that they had going on. And obviously maybe the season didn't end exactly the way you wanted it, but you still saw success and you still had quite the run. Um, but talking about moving to that next level, uh, in 2016, after spending some time there, uh, you joined the Erie Otters. Uh, how did that position open up for you? And what was your initial feeling and experience transitioning to the OHL? So it's, um, you know, it's, it's funny how it all sort of came together quickly. I mean, at this point, I was, um, you know, 26 turning 27. I, I'd sort of been on the periphery of, of a sporting career for a long time. I, you know, I'd started um, working at, you know, staff leads, um, you know, and, and that was sort of my entry into analytics, but I, uh, I had sort of given myself a uh, ultimatum where if I had hit 30 years old and didn't have a full-time paying career coaching hockey, I would put that on the back burner um, and focus more on developing uh, a different career and and volunteer and, and just keep it as as a hobby. And I, I honestly, I didn't have a problem with that. If if I hadn't been coaching at this point in my life, um, you know, there would have certainly been disappointment that it wasn't my career. 
but I think I would have totally accepted the fact that I gave it my best shot and it didn't work out. Sometimes all it takes is, is opportunity and timing. And so, um, I, I wasn't really looking, uh, that, that summer, that off season, I wasn't looking for any OHL coaching jobs. I thought they would happen probably a year or two after that. You know, I'd only, like I said, been a part of a winning staff as a head coach for, for one year. Um, and I didn't necessarily think that I was qualified, uh, to be honest, to, to get a job like that. And so I wasn't looking. Um, and that off season, you know, spent a lot of time developing um, and recruiting for the Falcons. Uh, we did our, you know, prospect camp and, and signed some younger players that I was really excited about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was sort of looking at, I was focused on, on the Falcons. That was really what I was focused on. Um, it was towards uh, May, June. I got a phone call one night from Frank Gurney and he said, uh, look, I was talking to, to Dave Brown, who's the general manager of the Otters. Uh, we worked together when uh, he was the GM of the Ice Dogs. Frank was his assistant. And uh, he said, you know, they've, they've got an opening for an assistant coach and they're close to hiring somebody. But when we were talking, um, the, the profile of the person that they're looking for sounds a lot like you would be a good fit. And so uh, he's expecting you to send your resume and, um, you know, send it over to him as soon as you can and we'll see what happens. And so again, my, you know, my expectations were very low. If I'm being honest, I was excited um, because all I was sort of looking for um, bigger picture was, was that opportunity to just get my name in somewhere. And um, I think it was gratifying to know that I would even qualify to have my name considered for a job. That was probably the most exciting part to me was, okay, cool. You know, they didn't just laugh off my name. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, it was a Sunday night. I sent my, my resume to Brownie uh, via email. And, um, you know, Monday morning, I got a call from Chris Knobloch, who was the head coach. And he said, look, I'm, uh, I'm driving through Niagara on my way to Toronto. Um, you know, he had something going on. Why don't we meet for coffee? Um, and uh, we can do that, you know, later today if you're free. And uh, we'll go from there. So I, I prepared quickly. Um, you know, I, I put together a little um, binder of some stuff of work I'd done in the past and, and tried to prepare as best as I could for that interview without really knowing what to expect because I'd never interviewed for a coaching position before that. And uh, we met at Starbucks uh, on Four Old Stone Montrose in Niagara Falls and ended up being a three-hour conversation uh, about hockey and about life and um, you know, it just, it seemed like a really good fit to me, but I still didn't have very much expectations. It was just a great conversation, but I still didn't necessarily think that, um, I was going to be qualified for that job. I mean, the Otters were coming off of three fifty win seasons. Uh, they had just lost in the conference final the year before and, and the year before that lost in the OHL final. They had uh, Alex DeBrickett and Dillard Strom and all these guys that, uh, seemed so far above where I was at. And, um, you know, the, the interview went really well. I think it was, you know, two or three days later, Brownie called me. Um, we went for coffee at, at, a, at Tim Hortons. It was a three-hour conversation. And, uh, you know, I started to get a little bit more excited, like, holy, holy cow, this, this might actually be happening. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that week, um, they just said, look, we, 
we're close to making a decision, but uh, we have some due diligence to do. We'll get back to you. And so I was going away to the cottage um, with my best friends. There's a group of six guys that go every year the same weekend. And I, I texted uh, Chris and Brownie and just said, look, guys, I'm, I'm going to the cottage. Um, the reception up there is not great, but if you do need anything, give me a call. Um, I'd be happy to, to answer any more questions you might have. But we, uh, we were up at the cottage. We were playing wiffle ball at a park. Uh, we do that every year. And uh, we took a, a water break. And I'd seen a, a missed call from, from Chris. I listened to the voicemail, and then it was offering me the job as the assistant coach. So it was a really cool moment to get to experience that with, you know, my best friends um, sort of around me. It was, uh, it was kind of an emotional moment. You know, I, I look back now as sort of a culmination of, um, to that point, my life's work to get that, uh, you know, that opportunity. And so it was really exciting, um, but it, it just, it happened so quickly. It was sort of a one-week process, week and a half, um, and uh, it just... I, honestly, like I, I kind of use the word serendipity. It was just like the timing and the opportunity was perfect that it aligned, and uh, I fit the profile of what they were looking for. So that was sort of how it all happened. It was um, it was really really fortunate to a know someone who knew someone, but then b um, you know fit the profile of, of what they had wanted. Yeah, it sounds like quite the week that you had, and and I like the the description of that moment, you know, when you, when you got that offer, uh, those little moments, a lot of people look back and, and whether it be them or if maybe even your friends look back and think of that moment with you, uh, in our last podcast interview, Jordan Hunter was with Dylan Larkin when he got his uh, first uh, contract off his entry level. And he spoke about that, that kind of moment where you just stand there and realize that you've made it or you got that jump that you're looking for. Um, so early on in that, uh, that, brief description there you talked about uh, Stathletes um, I just want to cycle back and talk about Stathletes uh, without going into too much detail talk about that experience of working with an organization uh, in their field and what you learned that maybe helped progress you and uh, your understanding of the game yeah so um, as I had mentioned I was sort of hoping to make uh, hockey a full-time career and so I left my job at Harrow um, and really my intention at that time was to go back to school full-time, um, become a teacher, and maybe look at uh, prep school or, or university as an option to get into coaching where I could, you know, I could teach and coach. Um, that seemed like a logical progression. You know, I, I remember um, being at the rink in Port Colburn as things were sort of coming together um, for that head coaching job there, and uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Rick Cole who was a volunteer with the Port Colburn team, a uh, really, really nice um, older man who uh, he actually runs the Hockey 50 Years Ago Twitter account. And there's a lot of people who follow that. Um, but he, he had sort of been starting at this upstart, um, you know, company called Stafflets. And uh, it was the second time in a week that I had heard about it because there was another guy that I, I sort of, knew his name was Dan Dooley. He played for the Brock hockey team and he, he actually billeted with the Chica family. And uh, he was telling me about what John, you know, and, and Megan and, um, and Neil were doing at this company. And so I was really fascinated to hearing about all the things that were going on. Analytics was really a brand new concept in hockey. Um, you know, you'd heard of sabermetrics in baseball. And so it was kind of like they're doing the money ball of hockey. And, uh, 
know, when I was talking to Rick, he said, look, I, I think you should come into the office and, um, and meet the guys and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. And so I went in, um, I got a job interview and there was probably only eight to 10 people employed at Stathletes at the time. They were at their very first office on Martindale Road in St. Catharines. Um, and it was pretty casual, but uh, they had a sort of filtering process. And I went through the training um, and was offered a job. And it was, um, you know, pretty, pretty fascinating to get to see the game from uh, a different perspective that I didn't have. You know, I got to see the game as a coach, as a manager, as a business person, as a salesperson, as an executive. Um, but, but looking at it, you know, as more of a um, objective point of view than subjective point of view when it came to um, evaluating and identifying performance, um, it really started to shape sort of a, a new philosophy for me at, at how I viewed the game. And so, like I said, it was a small upstart company. Uh, they had just sort of secured a contract with one NHL team and another was on the horizon. And um, it provided me some flexibility in terms of work schedule. And so I, I did that for, um, I think, two and a half years. I was at Stathletes and it was, um, it was really a very um, granular way of watching hockey. You know, your, your micro tracking events and um, and then learning sort of that side of the game as it was growing was, um, it was a big part of actually, you know, how I ended up getting the job in Erie was they were looking for someone who had some, um, some wherewithal and some experience working with, uh, with data and, and data tracking, um, but could also sort of incorporate it into coaching. And so again, you know, when it comes to, to timing, uh, it just, like I said, it was sort of in the span of you know, a short time, I had kind of heard from a couple sources about what those guys were doing who just happened to be connected to it. And uh, I was, I was really lucky to, to get that job early on. I mean, John was, John was still not with Arizona yet. Um, he was, he was working for Stathletes. It was, it was his company um, with Megan, his sister and uh, Neil Lane, um, who's their business partner. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely really unique. Um, but again, you know, the timing of it sort of just seemed to fall into place. Exactly. And, and I was also uh, fortunate enough to be employed with Stathletes for a while. And uh, I worked under Neil and Megan. It was, it's just, a, it teaches you a different way to look at the game. And they're so forward thinking with everything they do. And, and as you said, uh, you know, moving forward, it definitely would play a part in someone's way to process the game. And Obviously, that helped you uh, when you entered Erie. So moving forward to Erie, uh, you have the opportunity to work with many talented players. You know, you touched on Debrinket and Strom. Uh, walk us through the few years with the team, uh, maybe the development that you've had since coming there, and also talk about uh, the success that the team had during that time. Yeah, my, my first season, we were obviously really fortunate. Um, again, things sort of fell into place. We started that year... Um, Dylan Strom was still in the NHL with uh, Arizona and Eric Chernak was still with the Los Angeles system at the time. So he was, you know, sort of slated to go play for the American League team. And it was October, November when we found out that uh, Cherney was coming back from LA. And then it was maybe a week later, we found out Stromer was coming back from Arizona, which was a, a major boost. And so we went from being a team that wasn't sure if they were going to be trading off some of the older players that were there 
to, okay, this is the, the last shot within the competitive cycle for this team to go for it. And it was, um, you know, as full systems go, we, um, you know, we, we really geared towards winning a championship that year. The team, as I had said before, was, you know, three years of 50 win seasons, um, which was accomplishment in itself. But this was sort of that last chance for that core group of, of 96s and 97s who had kind of been through all that um, pain of losing, getting to the end and losing. And so, uh, you know, we went for it. And uh, at the trade deadline, we acquired um, Anthony Sorelli from Oshawa and Ricard Fogel from Kingston. Um, you know, we'd already had, as I mentioned, Alex DeBrinkett and Eric Chernak and Dylan Strom. We also had Darren Radish, who uh, that year won the Overage Player of the Year and Defenseman of the Year. Uh, we had Taylor Radish, his brother, who was a second-round pick, Tampa Bay Lightning. You know, we had Kyle Pettit, who was a draft pick of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, I mean, the team was just absolutely stacked with talent. And, um, you know, it was just such a cool experience. And on top of that, you know, we had Chris Knobloch, who, uh, as I said, you know, had had an experience winning a Western League title before coming to the Ontario League, uh, has one of the best winning percentages of all time in the CHL. And the next year, he ended up going to the NHL as an assistant coach. Um, and so we, we went for it. And uh, that was an incredible ride. You know, we, we won 50 games again, became the first team in CHL history to win 50 games four years in a row. No one's ever done that. Um, even since, no one has come close to that. You know, we, uh, we certainly had our fair share of adversity, you know, going through um, the playoffs, you know, the – the first round, we, we played Sarnia and, and swept them. But then the second round, we faced the London Knights. And, you know, I look back now, uh, that Western Conference was absolutely insane in 2016-17. There were four teams with 100 points, and, and Windsor came fifth with, with I believe, 98. And they, uh, they were the Memorial Cup champion coming fifth in the conference, didn't even have home ice. So we played London, who uh, was fourth. They only finished – um, you know, a point behind us in the standings. So the, the margin was real close. We went to seven games. Um, you know, in, in the seventh game, they, uh, they had a two-goal lead on us in the first period. We, we ended up coming back. We, we win in overtime. It was a crazy game. And then uh, faced Owen Sound in the conference final. Uh, and then Mississauga in the OHL final. And, you know, Anthony Sorelli scored the winning goal in overtime. Um, so we, we won the OHL championship my first year. It was an incredible ride. You know, we went to the Memorial Cup in Windsor and, um, you know, unfortunately bowed down to, to the spits in the, the final. They, you know, they scored a third period goal late. And, um, but even still, it was, it was an amazing experience to, to walk into that your very first year. It was kind of uh, a whirlwind. And I, I wish now that I had sort of taken more time to, appreciate it because a lot of people can go an entire career you know 20 30 years without getting that experience and I kind of had it my very first year um and not to say you take it for granted because I think every day I woke up going you know like uh how did I end up here type of thing but um you know it was it was just a really unique special group um that remains close to this day um you know we did a, a reunion on zoom um at the beginning of you know, the, the quarantine, uh, I think almost the entire team was there. And uh, it was it was a really cool experience to get to see those guys um, in my first year. Uh, it sounds like an amazing experience. And, and 
me personally, I was able to jump in uh, my first internship with the Growlers and win a championship. And people always said to me during that run, you know, take, take some time to take it all in because some people don't get to experience a championship run or eventually winning a championship. Um, and as a fan and following that team back in the day, uh, it, I, I expected nothing less than, than the, the fun and the excitement that was going on behind the scenes. Um, looking a little bit forward, uh, while in Erie, you also had some opportunities to do some coaching uh, with the OHL Combine, the Performance Development League, and some work with the OHF. Uh, talk about those different experiences and the ability to work with various players and other great coaches in those roles. Yeah, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier about, um, you know, range or divergence. I think, you know, one thing that I've tried to always incorporate into my coaching is, is drawing from all the different experiences that I've had over the last, you know, decade to two decades in the game. Um, and even, you know, like I look in Erie, an assistant coach's role um, requires a lot of range, whether you're responsible for booking travel or if you're responsible for, you know, doing meals or team building or, you know, planning itineraries on the road. Um, all those don't necessarily relate directly to hockey operations. Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of talk about these other experiences. I, I think something that I've tried to stay true to myself is um, the background where I came from and, and reciprocating and giving back, um, but still taking opportunities to learn from what's going on at, at different areas and levels of the game. And so, um, you know, the OHF and the OHL run an under 15 program of excellence, which, you know, I've returned to every year um, as a mentor coach, you know, with the minor hockey coaches and younger players there. It's a, it's a great opportunity to, to network with people. I went, I attended as an OHF coach when I was coaching minor midget. Um, you just get to meet people from different backgrounds, um, coaching different levels of hockey, and, um, you know, it's, it's a great experience. You go in, they do different seminar presentations, um, on ice, you know, uh, speaker panels. It's a great opportunity to learn. And, uh, I'm really fortunate that, uh, you know, the league allows me to come back and, and do those things. And it's you know, no different with the performance development league, um, that they run in the off season and the combine. Uh, I try and I try and get involved in as much as I possibly can. The coaches conference is another thing that they do that I you know I attend or speak at um, every year. I, I think um, you know it's important one to to give back to the grassroots level and try and develop other people and players, but also you know there's a lot to learn. Um, they're coaching sort of that next generation of athletes who are coming into our league, and they're totally different. And so you can learn from those coaches, and then working with those players and just getting to see you know, what their temperament is and how they respond to coaching. And, um, you know, you get a good sense for, for different levels. So I, I try and be involved in as many things as I possibly can that are A, league related, but, but B, you know, networking opportunities. So if it's um, other hockey camps or, you know, other um, leadership seminars, things of that nature where you can draw from other people's experiences to, um, you know, to try and develop and, and hone your own craft. And so, um, I, I think the, the big lesson or takeaway from those things for me is, is sort of um, having some divergence and, and, and developing even more range in, in what I do. Exactly. You touch on that uh, divergence and, and learning, and you keep talking about the point of being able to learn more from these interactions. Um, over your career thus far, you've probably learned a lot and likely developed new techniques to adapt to the game. Uh, in a general sense, how have coaching and coaching techniques changed in your opinion? 
over the years and maybe touch on some new forms of coaching such as analytics, video, and mental assessments. Yeah, I, I look back sometimes and I shudder at um, myself as a coach at the beginning and how little I knew and how much I thought I knew. I mean, it's certainly an ongoing process. The game is, is always changing. Um, but it, it was pretty basic, even those, you know, the minor midget year or when I was coaching minor Adam, um, what I thought I knew, I really didn't have a clue. And, uh, you know, things are constantly evolving. Uh, I know we were talking just before this about the development opportunities that have existed as a result of, um, you know, this whole pandemic uh, have really helped me grow. I, I can't wait to get back and, and try new things. Um, you know, specifically to how things have changed, I think one, you know, as we talked about, analytics was an area of the game that didn't even exist when I, I started coaching. And I, I say it didn't exist. I mean, I think information gathering has always been something that um, coaches have done. Uh, maybe analytics has just given it a term and, and taken sort of that information gathering to, to a whole new level. Um, but, you know, that's something where you have to be really well versed in as a coach now, whereas the expectation before was, you know, maybe there was a bit more of a divide between numbers people and, and coaching people. I think, you know, coaches have to be well versed and experienced uh, in that area of the game or, or they're, they're really left behind. Um, the, the new area where I, I think the line is being blurred is skill development and player development. And I think you're seeing more and more um, assistant coaches and head coaches have to be well-versed in, in skills and, and um, you know, player development on top of traditional coaching means. And I, I think, you know, there's still room for skills coaches, but especially you know, the junior level, you have to wear a lot of different hats. And so um, I think being well-versed in player development is something that, you know, coaches, it's an it's a expectation now. Players spend the entire offseason with, you know, a whole entourage of uh, skills coaches and nutritionists and, um, you know, fitness coaches, and they have more information in coaching than they've ever had before. And you need to be well first in that to speak the same language as your players. And so I think that line is being blurred. Uh, the expectation, you know, to incorporate skills into your practices. Um, there's, there's way more of a, a fascination um, with the athletes in, in that area of the game than there ever was before. So um, I, I think those are probably two areas where I've continued to try and grow in, um, but also where I see, um, you know, expectations of, of coaches have definitely increased in that regard. Definitely. Uh, to follow up on that, one listener wanted to get your opinion. Um, how impactful do you feel systems are towards a player's development? And then uh, maybe, in your opinion, should scouts be aware of these systems when evaluating a player at a level such as the OHL? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question um, that, that requires a lot of consideration. And I think to put it succinctly, you know, good coaching can hide deficiencies, um, whether it's relating to hockey IQ or decision-making or, or skill. And I think bad coaching can suppress it. So I think it's definitely important, you know, from a talent identification standpoint, um, to take that into consideration, you know, a, a team that is much more conservative, um, that you know may not necessarily value um, playmaking or or creativity or or 
um, risk taking, you know, may suppress um, some creativity or, or risk taking within a player that you don't get to see. And so, um, you know, it, it's kind of a, an interesting subject. I think definitely in the way that I, you know, I, I say that coaches sort of the line blurs between what their expectation is. I think it's sort of like that for, for everyone involved in, in the sport that, you know, you need to be um, well-versed in, in more than one area. You can't just be an expert in, in one specific thing because there's a lot more variables to consider. I know something that, you know, a few years ago, I really tried to um, develop my learning in was, was goaltending. You know, um, goalies are probably way ahead of positional players in terms of specific individualized coaching, uh, like decades ahead. Um, and so, you know, I spent a lot of time at, at Ben Vanderklok's goalie school to learn about what the goalies are being taught in terms of how they, you know, position themselves, um, when to use the reverse VH and when to use overlap and um, what are they willing to give up or, or, you know, what are some areas to expose. And so I think as a, a scout, you know, in terms of talent identification, you certainly need to be aware of some of the other variables at play. And I think, like I said, the best way to put it is that, you know, good coaching can hide some of those deficiencies, but bad coaching can, can suppress them too. And so um, I, I think it plays a, a major role. I, I, I think, um, you know, in terms of that talent identification, it's the difference between having a deterministic um, viewpoint of a player's development path and an indefinite view of what they're capable of. And I think trying to discover, um, you know, instead of thinking about what a player can't do, focusing on what they can do and trying to find that opportunity within maybe systems play uh, will give you a more indefinite view of what they're capable of instead of a deterministic view of it. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. And I think that really goes in depth to answer that question. Uh, earlier, and as we mentioned before we got on this interview, uh, we talked about the opportunities to learn and, and develop that have uh, really come about during the pandemic. Uh, one of those that I really took advantage of, and I know a number of listeners also tuned into, was the Niagara Coaches Seminar. Uh, talk about your creation and your involvement in getting that started up and discuss how it has grown to this day. Yeah, so following that first season in Erie, I, I came home um, and I think really it was kind of a letdown. You have the excitement of, of being in a long playoff run and um, I kind of got home and it was like, well, well, now what? You know, in the offseason was short. Our last game was May 29th. You know, we, we had to do our um, spring orientation camp that first weekend in June. You know, by that point, your offseason is already almost done. And so I still kind of had a couple-week window where I was looking for, you know, something to occupy my time. And something that I've always been um, obsessed with, it's near and dear to my heart, is, is you know, professional development. Uh, I always try to attend as many seminars as I can. And so I thought, you know what? Um, there's a lot of great coaches from the Niagara region. Why don't we host our own? And I, I think the, the essence or the nature of it was giving an opportunity to grassroots level coaches um, to have access to resources that they, they may not otherwise have access to. I mean, I, I thought of myself as a 18 year old aspiring hockey coach. Um, sometimes resources aren't, as accessible as you'd like them to be. I mean, it costs money to go to the coach's site in Toronto uh, to put up, you know, over a thousand bucks and go to a hotel or, 
you know, go to Roger Nielsen's clinic for a few days. It's, it can be really um, costly to try and develop yourself. And so uh, I wanted to give opportunities to people who were like me um, that wanted that opportunity, but make it um, accessible. And so that first year, I, I asked people who were in my direct network to be involved. You know, Murray Nystrom, um, who was the coach of Brock University at the time, and uh, Dave Bell, who was coaching the Ice Dogs, and uh, Ben Vanderklok, you know, Ben Boudreau, whose camp I work every summer. They were all sort of people that I work with every day. And I said, hey, here's what I want to do. I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay you. I want this to be free for minor hockey coaches to attend. Um, and that 2017 year, you know, we had uh, 42 coaches. It was free. We did it at a little community center room in, in St. Catharines. And it was a great day. We raised a bunch of money for the food bank. And so, you know, moving forward, we got such great response from it. Uh, it was kind of like, let's make this an annual event. And so Murray really helped me, you know, transition it from being this little small thing to maybe a little bit more um, professional presentation. And, um, you know, we, we did it for the first three years moving around the region. It grew from 42 coaches to 75 to 110 in three years. Um, you know, we added an on ice portion and, and it was kind of ironic that, um, it grew from being this grassroots level to the coaches coming from you know, really all over the province and in a couple States, um, to come for the day, I think because of how accessible it was and you're getting, you know, the same experience you would at, um, any of these high profile coaching seminars at, uh, you know, at, at first it was free. Now it's, it was $50 the last time we ran it in person to cover, you know, breakfast, lunch, facility costs. Um, you know, there were Hockey Canada development points for coaching certification, but it was 50 bucks. And uh, people were coming from all over saying, this is great. It was kind of our little hidden gem um, and a passion project for me in the off season. Obviously, you know, the pandemic hit and we had to pivot as many people have had to with, uh, you know, other industries. And uh, I just, you know, I thought what better way to, to do this than, make it accessible to the whole world. And so we have this platform, Zoom, that's accessible um, and gives you the opportunity to broadcast to a whole new audience. And I had put together a presentation for the OHL Coaches Conference. That was canceled. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to make it available. Whoever wants to sign up can sign up and we'll see what happens. And uh, 450 people ended up signing up for that. It was, it was free. Um, from all levels of hockey, men's, women's, youth, junior, pro, um, all across the world. That first presentation, I think there were seven countries represented. And the feedback, again, was so strong that, um, you know, we, uh, we just said, okay, maybe there's something here. And other people were volunteering and, and excited to be involved. TJ Manisterski was the first one to reach out and say, I'd love to do a presentation as well. Uh, when it was all said and done, we had 11 different presentations, a lot of range of topics, um, you know, 17 different countries, over a thousand unique attendees, some incredible presenters. Um, and it was, it was completely free for people. And it was a great opportunity to pivot and, you know, really made me question moving forward if, if that's the way to go instead of um, doing this in-person thing, because, you know, your overhead is low and um, you get this whole other 
uh, broad, diverse audience that we probably wouldn't have been able to broadcast to before that. So it was, uh, it was really cool. I mean, it was mind blowing to me. It just, it took off. I had no expectation going into it that that was what was going to happen, but it did. So it was, it was pretty neat. Yeah, that, that was a great experience. And me personally, you know, I was in St. John's, Newfoundland and maybe the opportunities for something like that aren't really, uh, you know, an option out this way. So being able to listen online and obviously with the pandemic, others, whether it be in the West Coast or the States or, or any other country, wherever they may be, had the opportunity. So for those who haven't checked out the uh, webinar series, I definitely recommend you look at that and, and learn more about it and maybe in the future, uh, listen in to future guest speakers or get involved if, uh, if that's what you'd like to do. Um, so these new techniques uh, in coaching and, and all these things that you can learn, uh, you know, it, it comes back to having these opportunities to experience other people's experiences and, and talk with them and, and reference their work. Uh, people are always looking for more opportunities, whether it be with the webinars or books to learn these type of things. So uh, from your point of view, what are some books or articles or videos, et cetera, that maybe you look into uh, in order to learn these new, uh, new ideas? Uh, I have a couple favorite authors. Uh, John Gordon is obviously a really popular one. I think a lot of my um, philosophy in terms of leadership was, was kind of shaped by John Gordon. Joshua Metcalf is another author I really like. Um, he's got a couple books, you know, Chop Wood, Carry Water, uh, Pound the Stone, and Transformational Leadership are, are great leadership books. Um, and then, you know, like we, we've talked about divergence a lot. I, I love to read business books, um, or, you know, psychology books. There's, there's a, there's just so many, I, I, I do this to myself. I, I buy a bunch of books that backlog and then I see a new one and I have a stack of 10 that I need to get to, and it's hard to power through them. Um, you know, ones that I'm reading right now, uh, I'm reading the inner game of tennis which is one that sort of is starting to gain some popularity because I think of, of Steve Kerr um, and Pete Carroll, you know, they kind of shared their experience with that book. Um, I love reading baseball books. I just finished reading the MVP machine. Um, great, uh, you know, book about player development and integrating analytics into that. Um, you know, there, there's, there's just so many, um, but my, my favorite two authors probably, or I should say three, Ryan Holiday is another one. Um, Joshua Medcalf and, and John Gordon. And then, um, you know, I, I subscribe to The Athletic. I think there's some great information there on, on all kinds of different sports. There's a lot to learn from, you know, what basketball teams are doing and baseball teams, um, you know. And, and then as far as like webinars and stuff, you know, I know we talked about this. It, it's just endless. I mean, there's, there seems to be something new every day. I know the HEO um, is doing a great job with a weekly webinar series for coaches, um, as is Hockey North. Um, you know, they're, they're giving out points for development in that. You know, I just finished the Hockey Canada uh, Skills Certification Phase 1. Um, they did a great week of webinars. And so, you know, there's, there's, just, um, there's just so much out there that, you know, I, I get texts every day from people, check this book out, check that book out. Um, it's, sometimes it's hard to keep up. I think I, I must have a, a library um, of over 300 books at this point. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive. And uh, yeah, there, like you said, there's just so many different resources you can go to, whether it be books or webinars or, you know, every day. And I created that spreadsheet a few months back uh, with different opportunities. And it seemed like every day someone was messaging me saying, you know, add this, add that. And, and I'm sure it could be doubled at this point. Um, 
So looking back at your career as a whole uh, to date, what are some of the major lessons? I know you've touched on a few, but what, just maybe name one or two more uh, major lessons that you've learned thus far in your career. Well, uh, it's, um, I, I think there's a few things. Number one is, um, you know, there's, there's so much outside of your control um, that's going to impact your career that it, it makes no sense to, um, to dwell on those things. I mean, I, I say this all the time, but I think, you know, controlling what you can control, uh, your effort and your attitude, you know, really are, are the only two things that you can. And they will take you um, so much further than, than dwelling on the past or on mistakes or um, things outside of your control. I mean, you, know, you can, I, I remember hearing Mike Babcock speak about this, you know, like championship or he, he called it gold medal talents, gold medal meetings, gold medal practices. You know, they don't guarantee you the gold medal, um, but you certainly don't, you know, get the gold medal without doing those things. And so I think, you know, uh, taking care of, of the process uh, and not worrying about the outcome is, is probably paramount to your success. And I, I think, um, you know, I look back, you know, relationships are, uh, you know, really the foundation, people in relationships are the foundation of your success. Uh, every single opportunity that I've had has been from a meaningful relationship with people that I've been surrounded by who helped open doors or, or gave me some mentorship or advice that um, allowed me to, to be successful when the moment called for it. And, um, and then I, I think the last thing is, you know, um, there's, there's an acronym um, that I like to use for loss and that's learning opportunities, stay strong. And uh, I think, you know, life is just so full of, of failure um, and it's, it's sort of how you choose to react to that, that defines you. And I, you know, I, I think of that experience in Pelham starting my junior coaching career at, at 0 and 16 um, or, you know, those times in, in minor hockey where we had losing records um, or, or, you know, even in sales, I learned this, you know, being an account manager, like, you know, you're told no, or, uh, you're told that you can't, or, you know, like you said, you're, you're going to lose, you're going to get fired. You can take all the right steps and, and you're still not going to get what you're looking for. And I think it's important that you recognize failure is, is a major part of your path to success. Um, and I, I don't know where the term came from, but failing forward, um, and sort of using that experience to learn and stay strong and, and keep moving um, has, has been really uh, helpful in my career that, you know, it's, it's helped me face adversity um, and, and know that, you know, there's, there's no, uh, there's no bad days. It's just bad moments and, and you move on. Um, and I think that's sort of the essence of what positive, positive leadership is about. And, and uh, I think you'll find more often than not that you'll get the positive outcomes that you're looking for if, if you kind of, have um, have your philosophy rooted in those things. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And I, I think I can speak to all those points that you've touched on uh, throughout my early career while only a few years long. And uh, from talking with others, you know, those points come up again. And I think it's great advice to go by. Uh, you talked about mentors in that, uh, that blurb. And I know you've mentioned some names so far, but who are some mentors who, uh, who share their knowledge with you and uh, help you get in the position that you are today? Well, I know I said from the outset, you know, my dad was probably a first role model. Um, you know, him being, uh, you know, a coach and an executive and volunteer. I mean, he was always on the go with, 
with all four kids and my, my mother as well. You know, I find the older I get, the more I actually identify with a lot of the things that, um, that she has in terms of personality traits. Um, so the two of them definitely the biggest mentors in my life, but professionally, um, you know, there's, there's been quite a few, um, obviously, you know, Frank Gurney and Rick Gurney, uh, in St. Catharines were, were a big part of that. Um, you know, Murray Nystrom has been another one. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Um, I, I get people reaching out all the time on, on LinkedIn or, you know, via email looking for advice. Um, and I, I think it's just what I've found is uh, most people are willing to open their door and open their book of knowledge and experience for you if you're willing to ask. And, um, you know, I've always tried to reciprocate and, and, you know, give back to the people who are kind of in the position that I wasn't in. And so, uh, you know, like, I wouldn't necessarily call them mentors, but people that um, have opened their, their book of knowledge or been willing to share their time with me, I mean, the list is endless, but, you know, Dave Bell is one. And, um, you know, Nick Vitucci is one and Jared Scaldi is one and Marty Williamson is one and, um, you know, Ben Vanderklok is one. And then, and then peer to peer relationships, you know, like I, I mentioned his name before, but Nick Denhon was a guy that, you know, at one point, uh, we were roommates, we coached together and we worked together. Um, I learned a lot from him. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just, there's so many people that, uh, that have sort of helped along the way. And then, of course, you know, in, in my current situation, uh, it's, you know, Dave Brown and Chris Knobloch and, and BJ Adams, that first year staff, those guys were, uh, you know, super helpful um, in helping me, you know, learn being a part of the staff in the OHL and, and then, you know, continuing that with, with Chris Hartsburg and, and Erie now. Um, I, I think there's probably uh, just so much learning from a, a mentor to student role and, and a peer-to-peer -peer role that, you know, I, I try and learn from as many people as possible anyways yeah i think that's a great approach to take just take it all in and, and make as many connections as you can and and learn from those people and it's great to hear that you had a number of people who had an impact starting with your parents and and moving to people that you work with in your current position uh, i always like to end off by uh, acknowledging that people listening are hoping to one day work in a position such as the one you currently hold or in a hockey operations uh, in response to that what's one final piece of advice that you can give to someone who is looking to progress in coaching or hockey operations Oh, that's one piece of advice is, is, is tough. Uh, I think I already gave some of my best advice, but I, I think, um, you know, a really good piece of advice is that, you know, almost, almost nothing that you will think or do is, is original. And so it's important to learn from others and then hybrid it to, to fit you and, and, and unequivocally be yourself. I think that's, um, you know, you, like I said, there's not much originality to what you're going to do. Um, so the only originality you have is, is who you are. And this is something that I, you know, probably have learned more with, with age is that, um, you know, you're a human being, not a human doing. And so if you can be yourself instead of do things that people maybe expect, um, it'll be a lot more genuine and people, um, you know, people will be able to see through if you're faking it. So just be yourself. And, uh, you know, something that I think a lot of us struggle with who maybe don't have the 
quote unquote pedigree or playing background as a professional is, you know, you have a little bit of this imposter syndrome where uh, you don't believe that you're worthy of the level of success. And that's something that I've been guilty of and continue to be sometimes is not giving yourself enough credit um, for, for the work that you put in, for the quality of work that you do and the quality of person that you are. And so um, I think being yourself, being genuine and, um, you know, giving yourself a break, giving yourself credit for um, how far you've come uh, will be so instrumental, you know, moving forward. And as I mentioned, you know, I, I get people reaching out almost on a daily basis. Um, I, I try and give time to every single one of those people um, because, you know, one, I think there's something probably to learn from them. There's a lot of great ideas that people have. But two, you hope that one day they're in a position to pay it forward uh, to people who can learn from them. And, uh, you know, like, I, I, it's funny, I listened to your podcast and, you know, like Alex Guinea was a name I hadn't heard in, in years. Um, and I remember going for coffee with him at Starbucks and, you know, him helping out as a volunteer. It's incredible to see, you know, his progression and success. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, I, I think when I heard, when I heard him speak, he's the same guy, um, in terms of, you know, like his character and quality of person he is, as he was five years ago. Um, you know, he's obviously learned a ton. Um, and I'm sure that that acquisition of knowledge is also important, but being yourself is, is the most important thing. I think, I think that's a a great point. And, And knowing Alex, he is definitely the same person as the first day I met him, but as you said, he's acquired a lot of knowledge and he's doing great for himself. Uh, Wes, I think that's a great way to end off the podcast. I just want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me uh, today and I wish you all the best moving forward with Erie and hopefully we can get back on the ice soon. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. I love listening. I think you're doing a great thing um, for for people all over the place trying to learn. And so um, keep up the great work that you're doing. I think you're doing an awesome job. I appreciate it. Take care. Yep, have a good one. I'd like to thank Wes for coming on the podcast and sharing his story of how he broke into the world of coaching and eventually made his way to the OHL. There's a lot to learn from Wes's story, and for anyone listening, I encourage you to follow his lead and look for other ways to grow as a coach, both on and off the ice. If you would like to get in touch with Wes to discuss his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly or contact HockeyMindsPodcast at Outlook.com and I can look to make the connection for you. Next on the podcast, we have Ryan Hardy, the general manager of the Chicago Steel. Those who follow Ryan know he is very candid in the public sphere and his interview only furthers that perception. With experience in junior hockey, professional hockey, and even the U.S. National Development Program, Ryan has a ton of insight to share, so stay tuned for the release of that episode. As always, I'd like to thank everyone for the support and interaction, and hopefully you will continue to follow along as guests continue to join me on the podcast. Finally, I'd just like to say stay safe and all the best.